Praise the Lord. What a tremendous privilege it is to be here with you today. I honor your campus pastor, Brother McClintock, and his sweet wife and family, all of the faculty and staff that pour into you every single day. Are you blessed to be here by the ministry of all of the incredible teachers? And what a tremendous opportunity you have. I'll be honest with you. I am jealous of you because growing up, my parents met at Bible College many years ago, and I would hear the stories of the incredible things that happened at Bible College, probably some of the stories of the not-so-incredible things, the stories we don't tell anybody that happened at Bible College. And then we'd go to a camp or a conference, and I was always so amazed because my parents couldn't walk more than like five feet, and they'd see somebody that they were just best friends with back in the day. And, and all my life, I knew I wanted to go to Bible College. And then when the time came, praying and fasting about the next season of my life, I graduated high school, and much to my dismay, every single voice in my life said, Caleb, for whatever reason, we don't feel like that's the path for you. And so I stand here this morning, and, and truthfully, I'm a little jealous because I wanted to sit where you sit. I wanted to have the opportunity that you have. Now, I am very grateful because my life would look a lot different had, had my path been different, and so I trust the plan of God. But what a tremendous opportunity you have to invest these years of your life preparing you for what God has in the future. Very quickly, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. While you're turning there, my wife was unable to make it this morning. She'll be on campus a little later this afternoon. But I do want to give honor to Ellery. There's a handful of students I know. I don't know your names. Um, I really don't know your stories. I, I don't know much about you, but I am grateful for the opportunity that Ellery has to be a part of Urshan and the Urshan system serving as the counselor here. And uh, there's a handful of students in this room that maybe you've had the benefit of sitting in a session with her. I will tell you, if you've benefited from her ministry, you probably have me to thank because for the last six years, she's been practicing on her most difficult client. She hadn't made much progress, but she's trying. <laughs> She shows up week in and week out, but I am so grateful. In fact, I told her the other day that the first four years of our life in our marriage, we lived in four different places in four years. For an entire year, we actually moved everything that we owned into storage. We moved in with my grandparents. That's not how I proposed to her, by the way, was, hey, come marry this dude. You get to live with his grandparents. <laughs> that wasn't part of the five-year plan, but it seemed that as we were seeking after the will of God, that she has always been faithful to say, Caleb, wherever you feel like God's going to lead us, that I, I'm, I'm with you. We're in this together. And so much of our early part of our ministry has been just following the will of God that oftentimes has had to do with what God is calling me to do. But I told her the other night that as much as I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am 100% in the will of God being here in St. Louis. I am even more convinced that as much as it is for me that this season of our life is as much about her and what God is calling her to do. And so I honor her, just even in her absence. If you see her, just tell her that I gave a good word about her or something. Make, give me some brownie points because God knows I need them. But I'm very, very grateful for my wife and, and my partner in ministry. Exodus chapter 1, starting at verse 7, says, The children of Israel were fruitful, and they increased abundantly and multiplied, and they waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Verse 8 tells us, There arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph, and he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more, and they are mightier than we. 
Verse 10, come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies, and they fight against us. And they get themselves up out of the land. Verse 11, therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasured cities, Python and Ramsey. And finally, verse 12, it says, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. A brief disclaimer, I know that there are a small handful of individuals in this room that you most likely have heard me speak from this subject before, but in praying about today, I felt very strongly that this was the direction that the Lord wanted us to go. And so for the next few minutes, I want to draw our attention to that phrase in verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, the more pain that they caused them the more the people of God just seem to excel in the middle of pressure and adversity and pain and distress. So for a few moments here this morning, I want to preach to us from the subject growing pains. Growing pains. Would you set your Bibles down? Let's ask the Lord to help us. I feel his presence in this room so strong. I believe that God's going to give somebody a fresh perspective about your season of life and some situations that you have faced. Lord, we come humbly before you today knowing that we don't have much to offer. God, knowing that we are broken and we are flawed and we are imperfect vessels, but I pray today that your anointing would make up the difference. I pray today that your anointing would do what only it can do, that your word would go forth, and somehow today that it would not be my voice that would be heard, but your voice would be the loudest voice that we would hear this morning as you speak into our lives and into our situations. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, everybody say amen. You may be seated. Now, I will be the first one to tell you that I absolutely hate pain. Is there anybody that would give me an amen on the fact that you hate pain? I am not one of those people who will ever intentionally put myself in a situation that would cause me pain or cause me hurt. There are some people out there that I think are just crazy. The guys that are willing to get in the UFC octagon and go toe-to-toe, you would not be able to pay me enough money to put myself in a situation where it's intentionally going to cause me pain or cause me harm. In fact, growing up, maybe some of you share this experience. I can remember as a kid that there was nothing in the world that was more terrifying to me than having to go to the doctor's office and get a shot. Anybody remember just being, anybody still just terrified of shots, okay? Okay, I can remember as a kid, I was a sickly kid, and so I spent a lot of time in the doctor's office, and I was just convinced that it did not matter why I went to the doctor, that that dude was going to find some reason to stick a needle in my body. I could walk in the, doctor, in the doctor's office and be like, Caleb, what's going on today? And it's, it could be as simple as, man, I've got a cold today. He's like, that's great news. I've got a shot for that. I walk in the next time. He's like, Caleb, what's going on today? Man, doc, I've got this bad hangnail. Well, wonderful news. We just so happened to have a shot for that. It didn't matter why I went to the doctor. I was convinced that I was not going to leave without him trying to give me a shot. On one particular occasion, I was about 10 years old. I contracted pneumonia, and I went to the doctor's office, and I can remember sitting on that crinkly paper. Everybody know that crinkly? That's just uncomfortable to begin with. Okay, to begin with, maybe your doctor's office was like all high-tech and stuff. I don't remember mine being that way. Mine was creepy to begin with. Okay, I remember walking in my doctor's office, and you could see there was like this old school wood paneling that was on all the walls, and up top you could see this wallpaper that had these creepy carnival animals, and, and this is what I'm working with to begin with. 
I go over to that little toy section that is supposed to calm my nerves before the torture is about to happen. But my doctor's office couldn't afford good toys. So I'm playing with a, a, a bear that is missing some of the stuffing or a, a doll that's missing a leg or books that have the last couple pages. This was a creepy place. But you sit in that waiting room and you're waiting so patiently, but not really. You're freaking out in your mind and you see that door over in the corner that underneath you can hear those tortured screams of children that have gone before. And you know just any moment somebody's going to walk out and they're going to call your name. And sure enough, it happened. They come out and they say, Caleb Saucer. I'm like, no, don't do it to me. I go in the back and they set me on that crinkly paper and, and the doctor diagnoses me and, and I can hear him just kind of pull my mom over to the, to the corner. I'm about 10 years old. He pulls her over to the side and he's trying to whisper, but he really wasn't a good whisperer at all. And he says, now, Miss Saucer, I just need to let you know, we're going to have to give Caleb an injection. I'm like, bro. If you don't think at 10 years old I know what an injection is... <laughs> I got bigger problems than pneumonia you're trying to diagnose me with today. But sure enough, the doctor walks out and he comes back, or the nurse comes back a few minutes later, and I promise she comes in with a shot that's about three feet long, and instantly I go nuts. I lose it, just this 10-year-old starts punching and kicking and screaming, saying, over my dead body, are you going to get that shot in me? It got so bad that they had to go out and they had to call three more nurses in to pin me down at my arms and my legs just so that they could give me the shot that was going to be for my benefit. Why? Because I hate pain. I hate pain. Maybe some of you have had a similar experience as me at about seven years old. Anybody ever had that experience where you're sleeping so peacefully at night, you're dreaming just all the good dreams, and out of nowhere in the middle of the night, you get this cramp in your leg. I know what I'm talking about. Okay, you're, everything is going so good. And then out of nowhere, this cramp just hits your leg. You wake up out of a dead sleep and you stick your leg straight out as fast as you can. At seven years old, this was happening over and over and over again. My mom would come in and she would massage the muscles and she would try to get it to settle down and I'd go back to sleep. Well, after this happened a number of times, I'm like, we got to figure out what's going on here. This just isn't fun. And so we consulted a doctor, a medical professional, and this is what they told me. They said, Caleb, what you're experiencing is something called growing pains. I'm like, okay, I've heard that term before. Explain it a little further. He said, Caleb, as your body grows, as your, your bones get longer, as your muscles expand, there is pain that is associated with that growth. Pain is a byproduct of physical growth. All of us in this room, we know this to be true. We have at times maybe experienced the pain of physical growth. We understand that growing pains are very much a part of our physical existence. But there is a difference between physical growth and spiritual growth. See, in the physical, what I've learned to recognize is that pain is often a result of our physical growth. But what I've learned in my short years of living is that in the spiritual, oftentimes the reverse principle is actually true. That in the spiritual, many times our growth is a direct result of our pain. And maybe this morning there are some of you in this room who, like me, you would agree that you run from pain at all costs. However, there's one thing that we learn the older that we get. It's that in this life, pain is inevitable. Pain is unavoidable. 
No matter how much we can wish or we can pray or we can just ask God to take it away, there are going to be seasons and situations that are going to cause us pain. But we must understand that many times it is these painful situations in our lives that God uses to grow us and to mold us and to shape us and to form us into who he desires for us to be. This is the principle that we see in the book of Exodus, the text that we read. We find that the children of Israel have been in captivity for a number of years. For a few years, things were great. When Joseph was on the scene, they were well favored and they prospered. They were given the land of Goshen. But the Bible is very specific to tell us that there arises a time when there is a new Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. In this moment, this Pharaoh begins to survey his land and he sees all that's going on. And instead of viewing the children of Israel as an asset, the Bible tells us he begins to view them as a threat. He gets his counselors together, and I don't know how this meeting must have happened, but maybe they've got a big, big circle table in a room, and they are all sitting there to strategize. And he comes in, and he says, fellas, we got a problem. So you see those children of Israel? They're more, and they're mightier than we are. They may not know it, but if they ever wake up and realize how strong they really are, if ever we are invaded by an outside force, they might wise up and join themselves to that army, and we're going to lose our slave, slave labor. We've got to do something about this. I don't know, maybe they discuss it for a little while. They're, they've got a whiteboard, and they're detailing all these maybe scenarios about how they can fix this problem. But somewhere along the line, this, this solution rises to the surface where one of them suggests, well, what if we just make their life even harder? When they leave the, the room that day, they go out with a plan, and the Bible says they appoint over them taskmasters whose one job was to afflict them with burdens. No longer would they provide the materials necessary to build the bricks, but they would require that the children of Israel worked even harder to produce the same quota, the same number of bricks. No longer was it just so easy, but they would beat them within an inch of their life if they did not do what they were required to do. Their one job was to make life miserable and to cause them as much pain as possible. I would have loved to have been there in the follow-up meeting, though. Whenever the guys get together and it's status report time and the moment Pharaoh walks into the room, a silent hush falls over the room and there's darting eyes that are shooting around the room as the counselors are trying to decide whose job it's going to be to deliver the bad news. Finally, the chairman of the board stands up. He says, I guess it's on me to tell you. And he says, Pharaoh, now I want to preface this by saying, we did everything that you asked us to do. We executed the plan to a T. We have beat them within an inch of their life. We have made their life miserable. But Pharaoh, I don't know how to explain it to you, but it seems that in all of our doing, it has had the opposite result. Pharaoh, we expected that they would begin to diminish. Pharaoh, we expected that they would begin to decrease in strength. Pharaoh, we expected that they would begin to fade off the scene, but I don't know how to explain it, but it seems like the more pain that we cause them, the more they are multiplying and growing in our very midst. We find that pain and affliction became the catalyst for growth that God used to multiply his people in the midst of their enemies. And the same is true for us today. That for us, the very thing that we would want to run, run away from, the very thing we might even pray for God to deliver us from, the very thing that we would get in an altar and we would cry and beg God to take away is the very thing that God is using to form and to shape and to mold you into who he wants you to be. And so I have come on this Thursday 
Sunday morning simply as a voice of reminder to somebody who is walking through a season of affliction that God has not forgotten about you. God has not written you off. God has not given up on you. But God has divinely positioned you in the middle of your painful circumstance to bring about His purpose in your life. You are not suffering the wrath of God. You are not suffering the hand of, a, of an evil God. But you are suffering the, 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 everything that He needs to birth in you who He desires for you to be. You're just experiencing Growing pains. Everybody say growing pains. Growing pains. My favorite author, Samuel Chand, he wrote a book called Leadership Pain. It's one I would suggest that every individual in this room would read. In that book, he he makes this statement. He says, our faith and our character are developed most powerfully in times of adversity. The truth is that pain is oftentimes God's classroom for growth. It can be one of our greatest teachers if we will just allow it to be. But I've learned that the reality today is that our ability to learn from our pain is directly tied to the perspective we have about our pain. See, with an improper perspective, it would be easy for us to look at the world around us and at the very least to believe that God was somehow out to get us. Or at the most, we might be tempted to believe that God really was not loving or God really was not sovereign because if God were really who he says he is, then why is there so much evil in the world today? When we look at the world that we are faced with and we see friends and family members who are addicted to drugs and alcohol, we see loved ones who pass away unexpectedly, we see families ripped apart by divorce, we see an increase of self-harm and a rampage of suicide and suicidal thoughts that is increasing year over year. We see extreme racial and political tension and a complete disregard for human life with all these things in view. Is it any wonder that there are people who ask, if God were good, why is there so much pain in the world? What I know is that in a crowd this size, specifically with this generation, there are more than just a handful of people in this room that when you've looked at your individual life, you've been tempted to ask the same question, that maybe I've been raised in church or I've been around church and I want to believe that God really is holy and I want to believe that God really is for me and I want to believe that God really is good and God really is sovereign. But if he really were all those things, Why would he let me suffer the way he has let me suffer? It's all about our perspective. It's all about our perspective. So I pose the question this morning, does God cause pain? Does God cause pain? Here's what I would submit to you, and somebody could probably do this much more eloquently than than I will today, but I'll give you my thought and what God has helped me to understand. What I would submit to you today is that it was never God's original intention that we would live in pain. It was never God's original plan for humanity that we would suffer or that we would live in distress, distress or that we would have agony and pain, but rather, when Adam and Eve sinned, when mankind fail, whenever disobedience to the word of God entered into the world, it was mankind's disobedience to the word of God that opened the door for sin and for pain. But here's the beautiful thing about the God that we serve. We often love to talk talk about him being a redeemer, that he can redeem us from our sins and redeem us from our past. But what we often see too, and maybe we glaze over too quickly, is that God does not just redeem our sin. 
And God does not just redeem our past. But God in His infinite wisdom and being the redeeming God that He is has chosen to use the thing that is inescapable, the thing that is unavoidable. He has decided that if pain is a part of the human existence, then I will not waste one ounce of it because the God that we serve has a unique ability to take every distressing situation and every painful situation and somehow He begins to work it around and before you know it, what seems so awful, in hindsight you can look over and your shoulder and you can see I had a sovereign redeeming God who was not willing to waste one ounce of my pain. He knows how to redeem our pain. Believe this is what the Apostle Paul was trying to tell us when he wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Notice Paul was not brazen enough to try and persuade us that all things were good. Paul didn't go as far to try and convince us that whenever you live life as an apostolic or live life as a Christian, when you make up your mind that you're going to give your life to the call of God, he didn't try to persuade you that all things would be good. But he does want you to understand that all things, even the horrible things, even the the distressing things, even the painful things, that when they're submitted to the hand of a sovereign God, every situation that you experience will never be wasted in the hands of your Savior. Because when you are called, when you are chosen, when you are living in his love, then every situation that you find yourself facing, God begins to work it around for your good hear me this morning that God may not have initially caused pain. However, God has chosen to use pain. God will allow us to go through painful situations. And even at times, He Himself will lead us into painful situations. Not to kill us. Not to punish us but to perform His perfect will in our lives this morning. I want to encourage somebody that what you are experiencing is simply growing pains. Growing pains. On multiple occasions in the Word of God, we read of instances where God would lead a certain individual or a group of people into a wilderness, into a desert, or into a dry place for the purpose of teaching them something. One such example that we find again with the children of Israel, we read the story that they're standing on the banks of the Jordan River, that God has told them that I've promised you Canaan, it's yours, it's your inheritance. And we find that they're going to survey the land, and so they send 12 spies out to go and survey the land. We only know the names of two, Caleb and Joshua, because 10 come back, and they've got a negative report. 10 come back, and they're, they're distraught. They say, we surely can't do this. They're bigger and mightier than we are. The walls are huge. There's no way that we can accomplish this. And only two, Caleb and Joshua, find themselves speaking the word of faith that says, if God gave us the promise then we should just trust that God can do what God said He could do. But unfortunately, we find that the children of Israel are tough studies. They're not quick learners, and so they are swayed by the majority instead of listening to the minority. But fortunately, the majority are speaking nothing but doubt and fear and negativity. We can't do it. It doesn't matter what God has said. Surely God made a mistake. Surely He just misspoke. That can't be the inheritance. Do you see what we're up against? And so we find that the end result is that God sends the children of Israel back into the wilderness for 40 years. Can you put up my verse in, I believe it's Joshua. Joshua chapter 5 verse 6. This is the reason why. 
says, For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people that were men of war which came out of Egypt were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. What was the purpose of the wilderness for the children of Israel? It's because God needed an entire generation to die. The wilderness season was to silence the voice of doubt and fear and negativity because if the walls were ever going to fall around the promise, it was not going to be when the voice of fear was allowed to speak, but it was only going to be when there was faith enough to say that if God spoke it, we're going to stand on the word and it doesn't matter what we may face. God needed those voices to die in a wilderness so that he could have victory. For some of us, you're asking, why am I going through a wilderness season? I wonder, could it be that there are some voices that need to die in your life? Because when you look at the walls that are standing around your family, and when you look at the walls that are standing around your city, or when you look at the walls that are still standing around your mind, God knows that the only way there will ever be victory is not if you're listening to the voices of fear that say that the Word of God is not true. Not if you're listening to the voices of doubt that try and plant seeds in your mind that say, God, can't do what he's but only when the voice of faith is the one that is speaking can we begin to march around the walls and say you know what I may not understand why I'm doing this it may not make sense while I've been in this season but whenever the walls begin to fall down we understand why we can have the victory there's purpose in the wilderness there's purpose in the pain another such example that we see is in the life of of Paul In Acts chapter 9, we're very familiar that we read about his miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus. We know this story. He has this supernatural encounter. He hears the voice of God himself. Growing up around church, I'll be honest with you that for many years, I just expected or just assumed that after Acts chapter 9, the whole rest of the book of Acts happened immediately. Paul got up from the road to Damascus. He's been freshly filled with the Holy Ghost, and God begins to use him as he goes on these missionary journeys, planting churches and and preaching and discipling and all of this. It wasn't until Brother Fobert, as a Bible quizzer, I learned Galatians chapter 1, that I began to put the pieces together of Paul's life that were previously missing. Paul talking to this church that evidently had been amazed by what they were hearing him preach. They, Paul, how did you get such great revelation? Paul, how did, how did you learn to preach so well? Paul, where did this great things that you're preaching about the Christ and about the Messiah, where did all this come from? And Paul, in answering the church of Galatia in verse 11, he says, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man. Neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Skipping down to verse 15. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, and he called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. I didn't go find an apostle. I didn't go find some great teacher. He said, that's not what I did. Verse 17. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. Literally translated, a dry place, a desert. I went into the desert, and then I returned again into Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, and I abode with him for 15 days. After his conversion, Paul did not immediately become the great apostle that we know him to be. But there was a desert experience that he was called away from the crowd, and he was called away from the noise, and he was called into a desert, into a place of isolation. 
I tell you, there are seasons of our life that you should never be isolated from the church and you should never be isolated from your mentors and your pastors. But there are seasons in your walk with God where God will begin to draw you into a place where other voices just begin to not matter so much. There's seasons even as you are here at Urshan that you may feel to get away from the crowd a little bit, to get away from the peer group just a little while. It's not necessarily that they're bad or that they're leading you down the wrong path, but there's seasons where God calls us into that place. Not so that we can live in isolation and fear, but so that we can learn what His voice sounds like. Not so that we would be excluded from what's going on in the world but so that we can learn what the voice of God sounds like. So that we can learn that in those seasons of isolation, it's in those seasons that we discover our greatest revelations. It's in those seasons where we are away from the noise and we are away from the crowd and we are away from everything else that's going on. Could it be that God has drawn you into a desert place so that you can learn to trust His voice just a little bit more? Could it be that there's purpose in your desert? Even Jesus went into the wilderness before the beginning of his ministry. Luke 4.1, I, I really did not like this verse. Really didn't like this verse. Luke 4 verse 1, when it tells us that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, I didn't like the proposition that the Spirit could lead me into the wilderness. I didn't like that, especially considering what happens next, that he's there for 40 days and he's tempted, and time and time again he leans on, on the word. It is written, it is written, it is written. But the conclusion of the story, Luke 4.14 says, But Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. He was led in the wilderness by the Spirit, but when he walked out of the wilderness season, something had changed and he was filled with the power of the Spirit. Now I understand we're talking about Jesus here and I'll save the theological discussion for another time. But the reality is there's a principle that we can see here. That there are seasons where the Spirit may lead us into the wilderness. And as following the, lead of the leading of the Spirit, we can walk in. But when we leave, we are not the same. There's something that changes in the middle of the wilderness experience. There is a new thing that happens whenever you walk out. You might have been led in by the Spirit, but you walk out under the authority and the power of the Spirit. Under the other side of the wilderness, there's supernatural power. One thing I've learned is that at their core... Desert seasons really are all about trust. I want you to catch this. Desert seasons, wilderness seasons, at the core of what their, their purpose is, it's all about trust. One person that I listened to, they said, said you've got to understand that the desert was the place of the shepherd. Whenever we think about Old Testament scripture and we think about David as the shepherd, I always assume that there was just green pastures and great fields that they grazed in. But this person suggested that, that the fertile crops and the fertile ground where there would have been, been lush vegetation for the sheep to feed on, that was much too valuable to relegate the sheep there. And so the shepherds actually did their work in the desert. The desert was the place of the shepherd. But the desert was also a place of just enough. Catch this. Whenever you were walking through the desert, there was not just these consistent pit stops where you could go and you could find fresh food and you could find an oasis. It was not like that. But there were just a little bit of shade here and just a little bit of grass there and just a little bit of water here. And it was the sheep's job to learn to trust the voice of the shepherd. Because in the middle of the desert, in the middle of just enough, there, there was not this certainty necessarily that I can see where the next pit stop's going to be. But the sheep who has put trust in the shepherd could trust that the shepherd knew more than they knew. 
That the shepherd had a little more farsight than that they had. And so they could trust that the shepherd was leading them where they needed to go. The desert was a place where we learned to trust the voice of God. Be honest with you, this lesson has not been easy for me to learn. In one particular season of my life, my wife and I, we were youth pastors at a church in, in East Texas. And, and really, I told this story to this, told somebody this was what I felt led to share this week. On a Wednesday, I was praying in, the, in our sanctuary, and God began to give me this word. And I was preparing for a hyphen retreat, and so I'm writing stuff down like, God, this is a great word, man. This is, this is awesome. This, hopefully somebody's going to benefit from this. What I did not know is that the very next day, everything in my world would fall apart. Everything that was certain, everything that was, I could hold on to, everything that was stable would completely be shaken the very next day. I didn't know God was giving me a word. So this has been very personal for me. Because during this season of my life, I'll be honest with you, I struggled to trust God. In fact, on one particular occasion, whenever we were in the middle of everything that was going on, I found myself in the sanctuary where I'd often pray in the morning. And, and it's only been on a few occasions in my life where I've ever been mad at God. And I don't recommend it. There's seasons where I just don't get it. And so I'm pacing back and forth much like I'm doing now. And in this prayer time, I'm just letting God have it. God, how on earth could you let this happen to us? God, when I was 12 years old, I prayed in an altar and I committed my life to you and I told you that I would follow you wherever you wanted me to go and I've done the best that I could to do this and this is what it gets me? God, I, I've given everything that I have. I, I don't want to be here. I, I didn't ask to be here, but we followed the voice and this is where you told us to go and this is what it is? Surely you made a mistake. Surely this can't be right. Out of nowhere, I felt something rise up in me, and I spoke out loud, and I'll never forget it. I said, God, I just don't know if I can trust you. I stopped. and just kind of paused. In this still small voice, I felt the voice of the Lord speak to me. He said, Caleb, I understand that there are going to be seasons when you don't feel like you can trust what I'm doing. When you don't feel like you can trust the plan, when you don't feel like you can trust my hand, he say, and he said, whenever you feel like you can't trust my plan, I'm asking you to trust my character. When you don't feel like you can trust where I'm leading you and, and where I'm taking you, what I'm asking you to trust is that I am still sovereign and that I am still holy, that I am still the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, that I am still the author of your story. I have not dropped the pen down and forgotten about you. Don't judge your life by one scene or by one chapter. Because as Sister Colthorpe so beautifully says, God writes long stories. And if we're tempted to just pause in this moment, we are tempted to, to say, God is not for me. God is evil. But when we trust that he has the pen in his hand and he is writing a beautiful masterpiece, I may not be able to trust where I'm going because I can't see in front of my face, but I can trust that God is still in control. God is still on the throne. Musicians can come. A few years before that situation, my family, we lived, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Do I have anybody from Louisiana in the room? Go Tigers. We got a couple. Okay, good deal. They're, they're my favorite. It's all good. I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and we had, my family had this tradition around Thanksgiving time, or really around the end of the year, I'm sorry, 
We were only within two hours of a, of a beach, three hours of a beach. And so at the end of the year, we had this, this habit of going on a vacation to the beach. And we would get this, this condo or whatever on the water. And, and we would kind of use it to close out one year and then to bring in the new year. And I'll be honest with you, one of my favorite places on earth, one of the places I feel so close to God is just walking the beach at night. Okay, and maybe you've never had that experience, you never get the chance, just go walk at night, put some music in. I, I, I rarely feel closer to God than whenever I'm in that kind of an environment. And so it was about December 28th, and I was praying over some things that I felt like God was dealing with me about for the new year. And I had, had this plan to read the Bible through. Anybody ever tried to read the Bible through and failed? You put your hands up to it. Some of y'all were like, and then you're like, oh, I didn't mean to admit to that. Anybody, okay, you ever read the Bible through or tried and then fail? You get to like Leviticus and then we're like, hey. <sighs> okay, so this had happened to me for several years in a row. So I, I had a different strategy this year. I got a hold, Brother, Brother McClintock, of the, the bread Bible. It was back when we still sold them and it was a chronological order. And I, I decided, you know what, I failed so many times, I'm going to try something different. I pulled back to something I had heard that maybe, maybe somebody who did Weight Watchers said, about their dieting plan, that they got to build in what they called cheat days. Just in case they had these, these bad days, there were some cheat days. So if I got off, off track a little bit, well, then I could still get back on course. And so I decided, you know what, maybe that will help me. So instead of starting January 1st to read the Bible, I'm going to build in some cheat days. Because I know I'm going to get somewhere about the third week of January. It's going to get a little bit rough. And I don't want to lose all the progress that I've made. And so I, I, I began to read a little bit early. And I learned something that I didn't know, at least the way this Bible was set up. I read Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4. And then much to my surprise, this Bible jumps to the book of Job. That right after I've read about Adam and Eve and right after I've read about, about Cain and Abel, right after I've read these stories, before I get to Abraham and before I get to, to all these other, I begin to read the story of Job. I'll be honest, I, I, I read that first chapter and there was a moment where I felt the Lord tell me to stop. And he said, Caleb, I want you to circle that passage of scripture because you're going to need it for the next year. Now hear me today. If the Lord ever gives you a year defining verse out of the book of Job, run. <laughs> yeah, this is what he says, circle the verse because you're going to need it this year. And so sure enough, I circled the verse in my Bible and I kind of tucked it away. I typed it in my phone because I didn't know what it meant, but I said, okay, Lord, I'll do it. Within just a matter of weeks, it was not necessarily things that were personal to me, but as a youth pastor, it seemed like we were hit with one attack after the other. I go home and, and the second week that I'm home, the second week of January, my best friend's dad commits suicide. The very next week, two people, two young people in our youth group, their uncle is hit while he's riding a motorcycle and he's on life support. And it was one thing after the other after the other where it seemed like it was tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. It was a little bit into the year that the Lord brought me back to the verses that he had had me circle. And we know the story of Job well. We know the story of Job well that he was faithful. That within a matter of five verses, Job loses just about everything that he has. In a matter of five verses, he loses his kids, his livestock, his house, all in one day. Job has a wife that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. And he has friends who might as well be his enemies, telling him to curse God and die. Job was a man that lost everything that he had to live for. Everything that he had going for him. And yet, so amazingly, we see Job's response to tragedy into pain. 
In Job chapter 1, verse 20, this is what we read. It says, Job arose. He rent his mantle. He shaved his head. He fell down on the ground. And he worshiped. Hmm. In the middle of the greatest tragedy, we find this man of great faithfulness who does not go and begin to curse God and question God, why would you allow this to happen? But we find and we continue to read in verse 21 where he says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb. Naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. But through it all, I still stand here and declare that blessed be the name of the Lord. Then in what is what probably one of the most amazing verses of Scripture, verse 22, it tells us that in all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Job, what's the response to immense pain? It's worship. Job, what do you do when everything in your world has fallen apart? He said, well, I'll show you what I did. I got down on my knees and I changed my perspective. Said that my posture in the middle of my pain was not going to be one of worry. It was not going to be one of fear. It was not going to be one of distress. And it was not going to be one where I cursed God and wished him to take it away. But my posture in the middle of my pain was going to be one where I lifted my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. And I put my eyes on the only one that I knew I could trust. And the only one that I knew could make a difference in the middle of my circumstance. Hear me this morning some young adult in this room I don't know your story I don't know that even as you came here to Urshan and you wake up every morning and you put your nice clothes on and you wear a smile and you do the best you can to fool everybody in the classroom but reality is that you are hurt and you are broken and even now while you are here there are some painful situations that you thought you might be able to escape from but you're still suffering the consequences of it. I wish that I could tell you that in an altar service somewhere, God would just magically take it away. But it's not been my experience. I wish I could tell you that he would just magically fix everything that's wrong with your family. Hasn't been my experience. But if I can encourage you of one thing this morning, it's that even if you are suffering incredible pain in the middle of your circumstance, Please understand that the perspective that you must have is that God is not out to get you, but you are experiencing growing pains right now. That there is purpose in the season that you are living in right now. That you may not be able to see it right now, but God is working all things together for good. That there's going to be a day where He redeems the pain that you have experienced. But until that time, my encouragement to you is not to get in a corner and to question God or to curse God. but it's to get in an altar and to say God in the middle of the pain I'm going to be a worshiper even when I don't understand I'm going to worship with everything that is within me even when it doesn't make sense I'm going to say that blessed be the name of the Lord blessed be the name of the Lord blessed be the name of the Lord Uh, all over this house I wonder right now if there would be some young adult who you're living this right now you're in the middle of the the season of pain and affliction right now that you would run to an altar or you would scatter all across this room you would forget about who's next to you or what you've got to do next and you would find a place of surrender where you turn your eyes back on your Savior and you say God I'm not going to question and I'm not going to fear but I'm going to trust you in the middle of the pain 
Come on, blessed be the name of the Lord. 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 Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though it doesn't make sense, I'm still going to worship in the middle of the pain. Come on, pour it out to him right now. Come on, pour it out to him right now. God, I worship with everything that I've got. God, I worship right now, even in the midst of not understanding. Even if all there are still more questions than there are answers, I commit that I'm going to be a worshiper.